It's midnight, the podcasting hour. Welcome back to the show. What's this I've just dug up from storage? Why, it's a skull. A very special skull. You may be thinking, what's the big deal, PJ? You've got plenty of skulls down in your storage room. One for every tourist on that bus that crashed last year. Why is that skull so special? I assume you've heard of King Charles I, who opposed the parliamentary forces of Oliver Cromwell in the English Civil War. That conflict didn't go so well for the king. He was arrested, tried, and convicted of high treason. On January 30th, 1649, Charles was beheaded in front of his subjects. His severed head was exhibited for the somber crowd. Some years ago, a vendor wrote to me, claiming to have in his possession the skull of Charles I. Would I be interested in taking it off his hands? For a generous donation, of course. The man piqued my interest, so we arranged to meet in person, so I could assess the merchandise. Of course, it was a fake. I knew that before I went there. The vendor was a charlatan, not unskilled, but not up to the task of fooling old P.J. Frightful. I told him I had no interest in the skull he wanted to sell me. But P.J., you're saying now, what about the special skull you've got there? This isn't the skull the vendor tried to sell me. This is the skull of the vendor. (laughs) Ah. Online shopping takes all the fun out of things. Welcome to the fourth episode of Midnight the Podcasting Hour. I'm Ryan Daly, and joining me this time is my third semi-permanent co-host. He's part of the Doom Patrol podcast, Waiting for Doom, and he comes from a land down under where women glow and men plunder. Please (laughs) welcome to the show Mr. Paul Hicks. How's it going, Paul? Good, yeah. You Americans never mention uh, men at work. It's it's a refreshing change. You know, we're we're such a simple people, so... (laughs) As I'm sure you'll find out over the next four years. Um, (laughs) Paul is going to be my co-host whenever we cover issues of Night Force, a 1980s comic book described by its creator Marv Wolfman as a sort of supernatural mission impossible. On this episode, we will review the first appearance of Night Force, a preview story published before the series officially debuted. But before we get to that... Paul, would you tell our listeners a little about your history with the horror genre in general and horror comics in particular? Right. Well, when I was young, uh, when you talked about what's my history, I immediately went to movies, which is mm-hmm. telling. I think that most of us, you know, most connect with horror through movies. Mm-hmm. I was always intrigued by horror movies. I mean, I was scared of watching a lot of them, but that didn't stop me finding the kid at school who'd seen them all and, you know, asking exactly what happened beat for beat in the Amityville horror and things like that. <laughs> um, so I learned a fair bit about movies just from the playground and people who had more flexible parents than I did. I think. But I vividly remember finding the Alien adaptation in the comic shop and looking through that and working out exactly what happened in Alien because I was kind of, that film was a bit too edgy for me to see at that age. But yeah, I think as you get into horror, you decide 
you find what your preference is, what your flavour of horror is. And I think mine has always been uh, sci-fi and monster horror. That's the particular type of horror I most enjoy. I think the horror I least enjoy is sort of the um, serial killer torture stuff. That's, you know, that's not much fun. But uh, I, I remember, I think, one of the first films I got to see in the cinema that was a horror film was David Cronenberg's The Fly. And uh, that is one of my favourites just because it's it's a magnificent character piece as well as being a horror and you're really hanging the horror on the loss of identity of um, Jeff Goldblum's character yeah. Um, yeah which is magnificent and another one that I really took to early and I think it's because of the strong sci-fi element was The Thing uh, John Carpenter's The Thing that one it's probably one of my top three films but moving over to comics um I think one of the first uh, horror comics I picked up was um, Swamp Thing. Uh, it was the middle of the Alan Moore run, sort of around issue 32, 33. So predates John Constantine's debut. And I really enjoyed it. Uh, you know, I, it wasn't scary as it, you know, kept me awake at night or anything. But I I love the descriptive and the poetic elements of uh, Alan Moore's horror stuff. <laughs> And I followed John Constantine into the Hellblazer title when that started. And there, yeah, that for a kid raised by Christian parents, that felt really edgy to read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but other than that, I, I haven't really found a lot of horror in comics that sticks with me particularly well. But I've always followed Swamp Thing since I discovered it. So, you know, not always liking the runs and not always sticking with them, but always sampling as well through different uh, creators and arcs and things like that. And still very much interested in Swamp Thing, probably one of my top five characters. I'm giving you lots of numbers and assessment here. <laughs> well, I was going to say you should listen to certain episodes of this podcast. <laughs> we'll talk about it. <laughs> no, no, I'm banning them because I'm not on them. So. Oh, no, no. <laughs> well, the two of us, we recorded together a couple of times on Secret Origins Podcast. You've been on Give Me Those Star Wars. I'm going to be on an episode of Waiting for Doom. But around when Secret Origins was wrapping up, we talked about doing something a little bit more regular together. When I started bouncing around different horror titles from DC, I was thrilled that you jumped at Night Force, because this is a book that I have been really excited to talk about. I mentioned this back on episode one, Night Force and Swamp Thing were the two driving forces behind the show before it really kind of took on the anthology format. The thing is, I didn't know who else would want to talk about it because I didn't think it was a very popular book, and it didn't last very long, spoiler alert. So I thought I might end up covering my myself more or less as kind of a podcast miniseries, but you said you wanted in on this, and I couldn't be happier to have you. Do you remember how and when you first discovered Night Force? Well, it comes back earlier to my talk about Swamp Thing, because the first ever time I noted Night Force was in the conclusion of the American Gothic story, Mm -hmm. when um, John Constantine is putting together his uh, magic group to um, battle the uh, elemental darkness thing. So he he grabs Steve Dayton from the Doom Patrol, and he grabs um, uh, Sargon the Sorcerer, and Zatanna and Zatara, and um, the place he picks for this uh, showdown is uh, Baron Winter's place. And, uh, yeah, so this was the first time I'd ever read uh, anything to do with Baron Winters or um, or Night Force. And I had no – like, I didn't know any history. For As far as I knew, he was a 60s character. I didn't know he was just uh, predating the story by about three or four years, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I, I loved uh, – the attitude balance between all these magic characters and, uh, you know, the fact that uh, Baron Winters is quite dismissive of uh, John Constantine and John Constantine sort of just has a comeback about, well, why don't you just step outside and buy me a hot dog across the road, and, you know, <laughs> <laughs> which is one of the things about Baron Winters. He is trapped in his house in the present day. Yeah, exactly. We'll, we'll cover that. So. Yeah. So that was the first time I ever did. And I must admit, I was very interested in continuing to podcast with you in some way. And, um, yeah, this was probably the only thing left at that point, I think, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, when you said Night Force, you know, I knew exactly the man for that job, and it's Dr. Ange, but I stole it anyway. <laughs> so in desperation, you glommed onto this one series that I'm sure you'll end up hating by the time we finish it up. Well, it's like the fancy dress, and it's the last outfit left in the cupboard, so you just have to wear it. <laughs> Well, my history, in 2011, DC released a special um, DC Comics Presents Night Force, I think it was like a 100-pager or something, that collected the first four issues. 
and I got it. I picked it up. Like, I'd never heard of Night Force at the time before that, before 2011. Well, I mean, I, I knew who Baron Winters was from the, that same Swamp Thing appearance. So I kind of, I, I think I knew who Baron Winters was, but I didn't glom onto the, the Night Force connection. I wasn't sure about that until I heard about that. But I was like, Marv Wolfman and Gene Colan, I like those guys. I like what they've done together in the past. So I picked up that one, and I thought the first version, it was pretty good. It, it looked cool. It was kind of an interesting premise. And then after that, just over the next couple of years, I would just sort of pick up random back issues whenever I saw them in cheap bins. And just about a year ago, I kind of noticed that, you know what? I've got like eight issues of this series. How long did this, I was like, how long did this go? Like, how, like how, how big was this series? And I looked it up, I was like, wow, it was 14 issues with a preview. I was like, I could collect this whole thing really, really easily. Uh, so that's what I ended up doing. I, I actually made a concerted effort to go back issue diving, like actually look in the letter N section. And before long, yeah, I, I had the whole thing. So Now I've got an interesting, because I remember that 100-page special coming out and thinking, oh, I really want to read Night Force. I think I'll grab that. But at the same time, I was, uh, you know, I often scan what's coming on Amazon and you know sites like that, and they solicited a hardcover collecting all of the first series of Night Force, and um, I actually ordered it because I and didn't buy the hundred page special, and then they cancelled the bugger, <laughs> so it never actually came out, and so and by that stage the hundred page special had been and gone, and I couldn't get hold of one of those, so yeah, uh, but I was definitely interested in Night Force when that happened, and to this day you can still find um, Phantom. Uh, availability for this uh, hardcover that's never happened which is a real pity and we'll kind of get into this later on in the podcast the way wolfman approached this i was like you know he was sort of writing for the trade before that was a thing uh in the sort of long form stories that he was developing i was like this whole thing could have been done in two trade paperbacks i was like well if you're going to do that why not make it just one you know deluxe hardcover edition i was like why didn't they how come they've never done that i was like well obviously it didn't last very long they probably don't think the 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 sales are, are the numbers are for that so you might have been the only one who pre-ordered that book, and they're like, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully after this show, there will be a huge demand for that. Uh... Massive clamoring for it. I'd exactly, say. exactly. Okay, as I sort of teased already, Night Force was one of roughly a dozen DC comics that debuted not in its own title, but as a 16-page preview inserted into an established series published by DC. The first time DC did this was in 1980, when issue 26 of the Superman team-up book DC Comics Presents included a free mini-story preview of a little thing you might have heard of called the New Teen Titans. (laughs) I don't know who came up with the idea for the insert previews, or if its initial success had more to do with the quality of Marv Wolfman and George Perez's New Teen Titans concept story than with the preview gimmick, but it was successful enough that DC tried it again and again and again throughout the early 1980s. 80s. Batman and the Outsiders debuted as an insert preview in The Brave and the Bold issue 200. All-Star Squadron began as an insert preview in Justice League of America 193. Blue Devil previewed in Firestorm 24. Dial H for Hero, Arak Son of Thunder, Captain Kara and his amazing Zoo crew, Amethyst, Princess of Gemworld, all began life as 16-page insert previews between 1980 and 1985 as did DC's adaptations of licensed properties like the Masters of the Universe, Mask, and Atari Force. For the purposes of this podcast, the preview that matters is Night Force, a brand new supernatural concept from the creative team of writer Marv Wolfman and artist Gene Colan, the same guys who collaborated on nearly a decade of Tomb of Dracula stories at Marvel in the 1970s. And what I love about the Night Force insert preview is that it was printed in an issue of New Teen Titans. Remember, New Teen Titans debuted as a preview, and now Night Force is starting off as a preview within a book that began as a preview. I don't know why. Why, but I find that kind of funny. It's a circle of life. <laughs> exactly. It just keeps me, it, And I'm sure there's probably like some sort of degeneration process. But <laughs> Did you read many of these or any of these uh, previews when they were coming out? Do you remember if the, any of these would have like intrigued you into buying the new books that were coming out? 
I was very much a uh, starting with DC after the crisis. So, um, you know, Man of Steel miniseries on up and getting Superman from the beginning and The Flash and Wonder Woman and things like that. So there's very few series that I went backwards on. Um, Swamp Thing was definitely one. But I do remember borrowing um, a big pile of the first, uh, like, 50 issues of New Teen Titans Mm -hmm. um, and working my way through them in quite a hurry. So I immediately think of the Captain Carrot one, which I think was a few issues before this one. But I definitely read this issue of New Teen Titans, and I don't remember reading the Night Force story. I don't know if I was just racing through the Titans stories and uh, (laughs) not stopping for anything, which was probably the case knowing me. Yeah, I was familiar with this issue. I don't own it. So I, I borrowed it from my mate Moby. I can only think of a couple of other previews, but I remember DC did a few where they would preview a series, but they would it wouldn't be an original story. It would be like a preview of the actual first issue. Like they did a help like the one in one of the Swamp Thing issues in the 60s, I remember. Yep. But, I mean, this is something they redid recently around the time of Convergence where they previewed all the DCU titles. Yeah. So there are all these little stories that uh, – eight pages, I think, for upcoming series. Yep, they did uh, that for Black Canary, Martian Manhunter, Dr. Fate. Yeah, all those books that came out around that time. Got those little yeah. page previews. Yep, yep, you're right. We're excited and waiting for Doom because the Justice League United one had Robot Man and the Doom Patrol in it. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we always take note of that sort of thing. That sets the doom clock. Um, yeah, so that it's a good it's a good gimmick. I really like it, and I think it's um, it rewards people who are enjoying comics, I guess, and you know trying things. You get a little bonus story, and you know you may like it, you may not, but um, it's not costing you any more to see it. Right. I mean, well, I think the the issue is it does cost the company, it costs DC or whoever's doing it, but I think they have to see it as a loss leader and they have to have confidence that the book that they're promoting will sell well enough. And with the market and the state that it's in, I don't, I don't know if they have the confidence in, in those things anymore, but anyway, uh, as mentioned, the night force insert preview appeared in new teen Titans issue 21, which had a July 1982 cover date, but was released in April that year. One month later, night, Force issue one hit the stands, and the original series ran for 14 issues before low sales caused it to be cancelled in 1983. Now, Paul and I are going to take a quick break to play a promo or two for other podcasts. We will be back shortly to recap and review the preview to Night Force. Don't go away. A crippled scientist with a short temper and a chair built for action. The bandaged man and woman and the sentient energy that connects them even as it tears them apart. A woman with multiple personalities and a different superpower for each one. A redneck who can see the future, but only 60 seconds at a time. The street that travels the world with fabulous style. The actress trying not to play the role of a freak. Hot hands. A boy who swims, flies, crawls or runs like a beast. Eight-faced girl who has imaginary friends with the capacity for unimaginable terror. The fifth richest man in the world and the mind games he plays. An Indian woman who controls fire and ice, but never the team she leads. Man who is a robot. We doubt there are stranger things than the heroes of the Doom Patrol, but join us on Waiting for Doom, the Doom Patrol podcast, and hear for yourself. In a story that starts with the cover of the preview, knights joust while the lords and ladies look on. Lord Bedford has a guest by his side, and they've just concluded some business. The stranger, identified as Baron Winters, has aided Lord Bedford, preventing the slaughtering of him and his subjects. This assistance has been given in exchange for some prime London real estate. Or it will be in 600 years, Baron Winters thinks to himself. A ringing sound interrupts their conversation, and Baron Winters takes his leave, steps through a door, and finds himself within an elaborate mansion. He greets a cheetah, Merlin, and makes his way downstairs to answer the phone, the source of the ringing. Reporter Jack Gold, smoking, is on the phone, confirming the interview with the Baron tomorrow. The shirtless Jack gets off the phone and gets back to entertaining the lady in negligee in his bedroom. Baron Winters confesses to Merlin the cheetah a rare feeling of excitement, something he hasn't felt in ages. 
The next day, Jack is doing research at the Pentagon, having used a contact to get some sweet access to files on psychic phenomena. Only one file has been a security classification low enough for his eyes. But when his mind at Major Carson is paged for a phone call, Jack is able to dig into the secret files and pulls a file titled Project Satan being run out of Georgetown College by Professor Donovan Kane. Major Carson catches Jack looking at the file and throws him out. As he leaves a support staffer, Carrie Holmes makes a phone call about Jack snooping. The mysterious man on the other end of the phone gives her instructions. Before Jack can leave the building, Carrie waves him down, makes small talk and says they should get a coffee together. Jack, anxious to get away, finally gets away after the coffee, but notices a man walking away from his car. Probably nothing, eh? He hasn't driven too far before the car is spluttering and he pulls into a service station to have it looked at. Jack calls his ex to explain that the alimony check is coming, while the attendant, Carl Turner, checks the car. Carl turns the ignition key and then dies in a fiery conflagration. Meanwhile, Baron Winters is reviewing photos. Jack and another photo of Donovan Kane, who should be a tempering influence on the hot-headed reporter. The scene shifts to a demonic ritual where hooded figures gather as one of them chants a summoning around a large ornate candle. The gathered figures soon strip off their robes, becoming completely naked apart from some carefully positioned shadows. As the group kneels and sways and the chanting reaches a climax, the candle flame flares out of control. They flee to the other room and we see that they are all wearing electrodes and the other room is an adjoining lab. The man who led the satanic baptism ritual, Donovan Kane, grabs an extinguisher and sprays the candle. He tells his class to take a five minute break. One of the students, Mary MacDonald, uses the break to make a phone call to the mysterious man on the other end of the phone from before. That Project Donovan is making progress. Force feedback was recorded. She is instructed to continue surveillance. Baron Winters is reviewing his last recruit, poor Vanessa Van Helsing. He muses that she's already suffered so much. The scene shifts to Vanessa in a padded cell, shouting in agony about the blood, the pain, the cutting and the screaming. Two orderlies run to restrain her as she bites at the padded floor. A no-nonsense female doctor, Dr. Rabin, looks on and tells them to give her a sedative and get the ambulance ready. When she's like this, only Winters can help. Soon the ambulance is parked outside Winters' mansion as he tends to Vanessa. Dr. Rabin is impatient and trades barbs with the Baron about his carny ways. Despite this, the Baron has calmed Vanessa down, and when she asks if she'll have to go back to the asylum, the Baron tells her, I will soon be able to help you. You're almost 21. After the calmed young lady and her stern doctor have departed, the Baron talks to his cheetah Merlin. It was good to see Vanessa again. She's grown into such a lovely woman. He is saddened by the role she will have to play as the focal point in upcoming events. He looks at the photos of the three participants in his scheme, Jack Gold, Donovan Kane and Vanessa Van Helsing, his night force. He heads upstairs to bed, musing that tomorrow will be quite a busy day, quite a busy day indeed. In issue 11 of Amazing Heroes magazine, which was cover dated May 1982, uh, they did an interview with Marv Wolfman about this series, just as it was coming out right around when the preview was coming out. And he talked about his approach to it and described it very much, the whole series, what Night Force was going to be was a character piece. Um, and he described it, he's like, yes, you could call it a horror story because there are horrific elements going on, but there's also going to be sci-fi elements. There's going to be other things, but really he kind of like, he he said that his approach to writing it was very much more of a novelistic approach to the storytelling. It was going to be a long form drawing out, having deeper layers of characterization than you would do in most kind of superhero comics, uh, and really allow these characters to grow because... As he kind of said, not every character would be in the series, uh, or would be in every issue. It was going to be sort of borrowing from that Mission Impossible idea. Baron Winters kind of selects who is going to be his night force for a given particular mission. And the idea was that that force would actually change and rotate based on what story he was telling. So we do see that a lot in this preview. We get these characters. It's pretty much just introducing us to all of these characters and figuring out what type of person they are, and also whether or not these are going to be characters characters that we like, uh, which was another big thing, because he mentioned that, you know, these characters are human and that they have very human flaws, and some of them, and we'll see this more as the series goes on, some of them, you're kind of like, I really question your decision-making there, buddy. (laughs) Anyway, what was your kind of general overall thoughts about this preview? It gives you little pieces of the puzzle, and it's sort of a, it is a preview, it's a Mm -hmm. pre-story, it's not 
the team coming together. It's the machinations to bring them together um, and just who the players are. And if you didn't read this story, I think you'd be fine with the Night Force series. Uh, you know, the, there's nothing you wouldn't have gathered from just getting into the story. I mean, you get a little bit of um, the intrigue of how Baron Winters can be in, in medieval England in one scene and then back in his house. And mm-hmm. and there's the mechanics of giving him a companion, you know, the, the cheetah Merlin, because that gives him someone to talk to about what's going on, which is very handy for the readers. Yeah, especially um, in the first couple pages when you're like, wait, what? Where is he? And yeah, and Baron Winters looks like he's walked out of a Hammer horror film, you know, as far <laughs> as, you know, he wears a, a, a very grand white cape with a high collar. He's got a widow's peak and sort of Inquisition type hairstyle, you know, and he's he gives off that uh, idle wealthy vibe, doesn't he? <laughs> he does, yeah. And and uh, Wolfman said that he thought Gene Cullen was drawing him to look sort of like, give him a sort of ancient Roman look with this sort of like kind of like mussy hair on top and like a little bit of a goatee. But I don't know. I, I look at him and I I can't help but think of Jonathan Freed as Barnabas Collins from the old Dark Shadows. Yeah, like, like with like the the great coat and everything, and like the the hair like just kind of like little jagged bits of hair on his forehead and everything. That's what I see. I see Barnabas Collins. Yeah, and and fairly enthusiastic eyebrows. And- <laughs> yes, he does. And um, he has just the beard that goes under the chin, so not you know a mustache a component. I don't know the word for that. Is there a word for that? Um, a, a beard. <laughs> <laughs> under chin beard. Yeah, under- that's what. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, give him credit. He's got to have you know a lot of confidence to be walking around in a white cape like that. That's. <laughs> Yeah, and his house itself has, seems to have uh, with the architecture. They must have had a special on balustrades when they built it. Cause, <laughs> um, you know, he's got multiple levels and ornate staircases and fireplaces everywhere and pillars and uh, a very nice old, you know, a good little art antiques roadshow uh, tour <laughs> yeah. for that one. <laughs> and you, you kind of mentioned the first page of the preview is designed to look like a cover. It has, yes. it has a DC bullet in the corner, and, and this was common of... I, most, if not all, of the previews. Uh, certainly, a lot of them did. It has a DC bullet in the front. It's got like the a cover, like timestamp uh, approved by the Comics Code Authority. There's like a full title and everything. This looks like the cover to an issue. But the image itself, and I love Gene Cohen, but this would be a bad cover for the first issue. <laughs> yeah, it's it's got the jousting knights of the main part of the picture, and in tiny the tiny little Baron Winters is in the middle of the picture between the two horses. But that's not what the story is about, is it? Yeah, it's <laughs> like, nothing about that. It's like <laughs> it's and and I'm kind of like it's an interesting way to introduce the story because I mean you you point out this is a preview. It's not a full story. I think if I had to pay for this, I would feel a little bit upset that we're not getting the basic form of a story, like even like a chapter within a comic, where you're still expecting to get something like a beginning, middle, and an end. And that's not it. We just get like a few little character vignettes so that we know these people, but it's not a full chapter. So I think it was a cool idea to give us a bit of an action beat to open this up and make us think, okay, this is kind of interesting. But... It's weird to focus, like feature so prominently as your opening splash page smock cover this image of a, of like jousting knights, and it's like okay, that's not the kind of knight force it is. <laughs> like, uh, where are we? And so, I like the idea. I'm just yeah, I'm not sure about the execution of that splash page cover. Well, if you're in a hurry reading your Teen Titans comic, you may not think to read this because it looks like a historical drama from the front yeah, page. Kind of, you're right, yeah. But we're soon introduced to um, Jack Gold. He's the first of the Night Force characters introduced, apart from Baron Winters. Mm-hmm. Um, I get a very Tom Berenger vibe of him. I can see that, yeah. I can definitely see it. And, yeah. and I think uh, he is certainly the character that we get the most... He he's sort of the most fleshed out, and I don't say that just because he's you know naked in the the scene where he's like an, <laughs> on the phone with his with his girl. But we get a couple of pages with him, and we find out okay, he's a reporter, bit of a womanizer. Uh, he's not yeah. married. He's divorced. It sounds like he has a drinking problem. He has this antagonistic relationship with the government, with this Pentagon liaison, which. Okay, strains credibility a little bit that they would <laughs> this Pentagon, this major Carson, would be so giving the finger to this guy and then leave him alone in the room with all the top secret files. Basically, like, by the way, don't look at any of these secret files 
and then leave the room. It's like, yeah, you didn't see Inception, did you? That's not. How- <laughs> It's only the Pentagon. It's not like it's an important building. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, I mean, I am a little bit mystified how a reporter gets into the Pentagon to do research on psychic phenomena. You know, there is one file he can look at, but it's obviously not the right one he wants to look at. Especially when it sounds like the publication that Jack Gold works for isn't exactly the Washington Post or the Times or something. Like, it sounds like. No, it's obviously a rag. Yeah, it's a scandal (laughs) rag. And it's like, how did they get credentialed for this? It's like the uh, podcaster trying to get a press pass for the Comic Con. <laughs> yeah, and Major Carson gets paged and uh, over the speaker and has to leave the room. I actually wonder if he was paged by um, his assistant Carrie Holmes, who's trying, obviously, is watching because she is an agent of somebody. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, and I kind of, it seemed like too much of a setup. Like it seems like they're they're deliberately saying don't look in this drawer and then going outside and like <laughs> looking through like a two way mirror. It's like is he going to go to that drawer? Is he going to look, yeah. look at that file? Oh, he did. And okay. he flips through the drawer and finds this file called Project Satan. That's the one I would grab. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> look, interesting. This might have something I want to look at. What is the government doing? So, so yeah, yeah we have the, our first sort of duplicitous agent katie holmes calls a mysterious person sitting down yeah we, somebody sitting down in the office we don't we in the first panel on page five we only all we get is like a leg we don't know who she's talking to uh, but she takes jack out for coffee he goes off drives to his uh the get the gas station he goes out to make a phone call and that is what saves him from a car bomb and this is some amateur car bomb work, really. I mean, the <laughs> fact that, you know, he can drive away and it doesn't go off. And then he gets, you know, there's a buzzing noise coming from the dash. So he, then he decides to pull over and his exhaust is sort of spluttering. And it goes off in the se- second ignition turn. Why didn't it go off at the Pentagon car park? I mean, that, you know, this is just some shoddy stuff. I don't know who these enemy agents are, but they're terrible. It's th- some really bad work. I thought about that, too, and I wanted, like, maybe, like, if, you know, they didn't want it to destroy other Pentagon cars, or if the guy who planted it wanted to give himself enough of a delay so that he wasn't near the explosion. Uh, yeah. I do love the panel on page 7 when the car explodes, and we just see sort of Jack, and, and this is something I will come back to throughout our review of this series, is my love for Gene Colan. Now, this wasn't him at his peak, but uh, I'm, I'm always just uh, in love with the way he portrays facial features. The, he gets the emotion of the scene. There's kind of a just a, a naturalism about his characters that even when the art doesn't seem naturalistic, you kind of feel the sense of everything has its own little gravity and its own little weight, and these feel like real people. Yeah, and there's a and a heavy shadowing throughout, mm-hmm. and everyone's faces look a bit smooshy. You know, not clearly defined. You know, there's right. um, you know, the shading defines people's cheeks, not you know lines as right. such. Right. right. So that it reminds me. I mean, I'm I'm not I I'm fairly new in my appreciation of Gene Collin from this series. I, I wasn't one who'd ever read Tomb of Dracula and his earlier stuff and all throughout Marvel. But um, I'm very reminded of Tom Mandrake's work. Yeah, too. yeah, Mandrake definitely has a lot of those same similarities in terms of how how much he layers and how much he defines stuff by the black space in the and the page with the shadows and everything. Definitely. And so then we move on, and uh, you know, uh, Baron Winters reviews his he's got photos of his agents, and the next one is Donovan Kane, who's um, looking a bit Billy D. Williams or something. <laughs> yeah, he does a little bit in that in that photo. Yeah. Yeah, um, and then we go immediately to this uh, satanic ritual, a satanic baptism, as we're told, and after it, it's over. So uh, this is some wild class at college. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. which which school does this, and how come I never took? How come I never took one of these courses? It's like, yeah, I, I like these pages just because we get naked Satan worshippers. Um, yes, um, but it, it was a really good twist when it turned out to be an experiment, and everyone, you know, you see after everything goes wrong and people run out that they've all got you know headbands and electrodes and. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, all like the sensors and everything attached to their like bodies and everything. It's like, wait, what? You guys aren't like pure Satanists. It's like, no, <laughs> these are collegiate types. These are academics trying to figure out whether they can summon a demon. It's like, oh, that always goes well. Yeah, we're just satanic curious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
But, I mean, even though we've got these, like, two different people, and it seems like the the thread pulling them together is just Baron Winters just picking up random photos of people. Now, between Jack Gold and between Donovan Kane, even though it doesn't seem like they know each other, we do have this commonality thread. Like, whatever Jack is investigating, when he picked up that folder with the Project Satan, there's some ties to what Donovan Kane is doing here with his experiment. So, it's this nice little kind of thread of, okay, these things are... I can see that these two stories will intersect at once point and i just need to figure out how and when yeah and and the implication is he's doing this work on behalf of the pentagon Mm -hmm. at the georgetown college and then one of donovan kane's assistants or students perhaps uh, this other woman goes outside and makes a phone call to presumably the same you know strange man hidden in the shadow sitting in a chair and it's the same green chair. Yeah, the same <laughs> green chair. Nicely upholstered. And he's finely dressed in a suit that is colored blue. And I mean, I I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to figure out. Clearly, it's not Baron Winters. Obviously, it's not the same character. But I, I don't know. The fact that it, we're just seeing some stranger in, in a dark, like, nice suit and everything. I wasn't sure if they were trying to be... I don't know. I, I'm not sure how I feel about this mysterious, like, shadowy villain player that we're we're getting. Uh, but you get the sense that it's it's an opposite number to Baron Winters. It's yeah. someone from the same uh, pedigree. You know, it's an fairly uh, well appointed room. It's got nice furniture. It's quite a dapper suit that he's wearing. You know, it's a sort of if he'd leaned out of the shadows and it was Vincent Price, he wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> right, right. And with Baron Winters, like he, I mean, his sort of defining color, like what is so striking about it is that white cloak. And here we have a character in mostly in black. I mean, as just visual, you know, distinctions. Uh, I mean, I think the art, almost by the color scheme, is telling us one of these people is our hero and one of these people is our villain. Even if we didn't have dialogue or understand the context, we could just look at their color schemes and get a bit of a sense of these are two opposites, uh, as as you said. And they're kind of one of them already has his agents in place. And the other one is gathering his forces to sort of combat them. Yeah, and they're obviously monitoring what's going on. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, Jack Gold coming to the Pentagon and snooping around is, mm-hmm. you know, a red flag. And, uh, you know, Mary's telling them that, you know, Donovan's experiment is actually having some success. And, you know, that's great. So, uh, you know, they're invested in what's going on and they want it to keep going on. And they don't want uh, interference from someone like a reporter. Right, right. And then we move on to our third member of the Barons team, which is Rachel Van Helsing. And, or sorry, sorry, Vanessa Van Helsing. I was gonna, yes. I was Rachel Van Helsing. I'm pretty sure that was a character that, in Tomb of Dracula. Vanessa Van Helsing, uh, I, I think Wolfman just liked using that name. Interesting that she is... I mean, other than the fact that Baron Winter seems to be in this weird house that has doorways to, you know, a, a, like a millennia ago, like different like eras in time, he talks like he's a very old character, but we don't know if there's anything, you know, psychic or unnatural about him exactly yet. Now we have a character who seems like maybe there's something up with her, but she's also locked in a psychiatric institute. What did you think about Vanessa as her character was uh, revealed to us? Well, she's not a traditional uh, comic book babe, which is <laughs> interesting. Um, yeah, she's in the psychiatric hospital. She is uh, losing her shit and chewing on the padded floor. And, you know, she's obviously tormented by stuff that can't be seen by anyone else. Um, and when the doctor comes in, it, you know, the orderlies are saying she's had another attack, Dr. Aben, worse than the others. So obviously this has been going on for a while. And they've obviously somehow worked out that Baron Winters is the only one who can help in these situations. And, uh, you know, even as Dr. Rabin is denouncing him and criticizing him, she's still delivered Vanessa there to be helped. Right. Uh, And this is probably the first time we get a shot of uh, Baron Winters' house from the outside. And Mm -hmm. it's very uh, Adam's family, isn't it? Yeah, this very stately Victorian-era mansion in Georgetown. Uh, we we get a little bit more of information about Vanessa. She's not yet 21 years old, uh, so she's she's younger than any of the other characters. Seems to be crazy, but there might be something going on with crazy. Um, I mentioned that Baron Winters reminded me of Barnabas Collins from Dark Shadows. Mm-hmm. Dr. Rabin sort of reminds me of another character from the head series, uh, Julia Hoffman, who is also a doctor in Dark Shadows. And maybe it's just like the way her hair is pulled back and the glasses and everything. It's Someone could be a fan. <laughs> it could be. Might be. 
Yeah, and Vanessa, I mean, she wants reassurance that she's not crazy. Um, and uh, the doctor talks about, you know, the stupid stories that the Baron's told her and, you know, things like that. So, yeah, and that uh, getting ahead of ourselves, that's a big thing for Vanessa is wanting to be believed mm-hmm. and um, to not be dismissed as uh, a crazy person. Yeah, the sense that she feels completely powerless, like she has no control of her life. I mean, the fact that she is locked away and has no power, has no agency of her own. And as the series goes on, we might see that she's really, really powerful <laughs> once once she's able to tap into that. But the way he tends her, it's um, uh, a different artist wouldn't get this right, but it's very, um, it's paternal. It's not, um, you know, creepy at all. Right. <laughs> you know, considering he's giving her a shoulder rub and, you know, soothing her brow and all that sort of stuff. But it, it doesn't come across as inappropriate or, you know, actually it's tender care, not, uh, you know, inappropriate attention. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, which is good. Yeah. And again, like sort of as as she as the the ambulance takes Vanessa away, Baron kind of walks through his house with Merlin, talks about the the people that he has assembled, and kind of gives us a tease of what we're going to be looking at. And we've got a reporter, an occult scientist, and a potentially crazy woman. And these are the three you know soldiers that he is amassing for what seems to be he, he's going to be fighting some sort of war and. We don't know what the story is going to be, but it seems like the way these parts are sort of overlapping, it feels like it's going to be about some kind of psychic phenomena. And I like that I've got a sense of where we're going. You know, as a preview, I don't know exactly what story he's going to tell, but I I feel like Marv Wolfman was a strong enough writer that he gave me the bits and pieces. I know a little bit about who these characters are and what makes them tick. I know a little bit about how their lives are going to interact. I can sort of see the similarities or where their paths are going to be charted and how those things will intersect. So I think this is a good preview. Like I mentioned before, like I wouldn't have wanted to pay full price for this because it's not a full story, but to whet my appetite for the series between you know those different sort of subtle elements and Gene Colan's art, I, I really dug this. I like this a lot. Yeah, and you get a sense of the opposition that uh, is in place against them as well, which is is nice. You know, the, all the these women who are spies everywhere, right. and an opposition that is not afraid to kill. I mean, we get yeah. a car bomb in this yeah. little short preview. So you know, an innocent man just working at a gas station is blown up. Uh, so yeah, and we definitely... get some details about him at the same time. He, like he's a father of three. Right, right. You know, it's that whole thing of give somebody a name, and it's not just a you know a pointless kill. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah. One of the other things that I I did like about this series, it was, and and maybe it was just kind of like in my mindset when I first started reading these, was Wolfman was going for a different type of horror. This isn't based on you know classical monsters like werewolves or zombies or vampires or ghosts, etc. And we will see this as the uh, primarily as the first story that plays out over the first like seven or eight issues as that develops. It's this weird blend of occult science or dark science and sort of medical psychic phenomena and like demonic possession and everything and it's it's this weird blend and when i when i started reading this i came to this at the time i was reading like a lot of the works of peter straub who's sort of contemporary has worked with stephen king before um and a little bit of hp lovecraft so I kind of like the different modes of horror that this series is exploring. You know, it's not just another zombie apocalypse story. It's not just another ghost story or a vampire story. It's this different type of horror that that feels it does it feels a little bit 80s, but there's there's a bit of a a modern feel to it too that does feel different and a new type of story that that we hadn't seen before and I like that. Yeah, and the horror is hinted in, in this menacing tone and mm-hmm. the unknown that's coming. Um, so, uh, what's the thing they say about horrors? There's the you know the monster that comes from and without, or there's the the compromised world where nothing is what it seems, and it right. seems more in the compromised world um, yeah. view. I think. Yeah, definitely. Overall, I mean, did this? Uh, did you like this? Uh, this preview. I do like it, and it's interesting because I'm so used to Marv Wolfman's writing in the Titans where he, you know, this is what, a 15-page preview, and I think there's probably all the words in this make the equivalent of three Titans pages. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, uh, Marv was pretty wordy when he wrote the Titans. Mm Mm-hmm. 
and yeah, this you know, it's interesting to see. You know, oh, he he had a man with many strings to his bow, and you know, tools in his writing uh, toolbox. So it, it's it's interesting, and I, I think uh, it makes me appreciate his Titans work more because that is a, a style of writing that he's choosing to do. You know, sort of Claire Monty and uh, <laughs> exposition, etc. Whereas uh, this has lots of uh, descriptive um, sentences and uh, people thinking to themselves and. Yeah, but it's not all, you know, spelled out through the dialogue. And uh, he would have had fun writing that satanic ritual, I reckon. Oh, sure. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very purple prose, some of that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Before leaving this one, getting back to that Amazing Heroes magazine that I mentioned, uh, within that interview, they talk a little bit about the origin of the name Night Force and how he ended up coming to settle on that. And he very much did come to settle. And there were a couple of different names that uh, Wolfen came up with. He, he mentions that came up with anywhere between 25 to 50 different titles. But at one point... Very early on, this book was going to be called The Challengers, and it was going to be a version, like a new version of The Challengers of the Unknown. Like yeah. that, that was something. And what stopped it from being that was there were some people in the in DC like editorial who thought that it was different enough from the old Challengers of the Unknown that they didn't want him to take that name because maybe they would revamp Challengers or maybe they would do a different version or something. They didn't want him using that. And they fought over that for maybe possibly months. But while they were doing that, another company licensed that name and that wouldn't have stopped DC from calling this book the Challengers. It wasn't like they, they couldn't use that name, but it would have prevented them from doing any merchandise with the name Challengers. And that yeah. was one of the part of the sticking points. And the same thing was the backup, the subtitle was the Dark Force. That was like the next title. And actually, this preview was written and lettered to be called the Dark Force. And then, uh, who was it? Somebody wrote a book called The Dark Forces, and another company optioned that and, and wanted, to, again, it was going to be a thing where they couldn't make any <laughs> merchandise with the term Dark Force on it. So they balked at that, and they're like, well, at this point, we've, we've drawn the, the preview story. We've lettered it. We, it's, now you've got to find a substitute title that doesn't intrude on that. And eventually he's just like, well, you know what? Change the word dark to the word night. It's just a couple letters. And that's why it's called Night Force. And it puts a little bit more distance between dark shadows. Yeah, I love it, which is already I, – I think it's already pretty well steeped in there. But uh, but as far as the name for the comic, it's there's nothing particularly Night force about the comic. I mean, that sounds like a, you know an Ultraverse title to me or something right. like that. I couldn't help it going back to growing up in the 80s. My association with Night Force comes from a subset of G.I. Joe characters like operating, and they basically were just repainted in dark blue and black, so – were the knife, ah. but so I was really disappointed when I didn't see you know Lieutenant Falcon and Gung Ho in this story. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. But anyway, um, I, I like the preview. I am excited to get into these stories once we start covering the the proper issues. I think one of the things I sort of want to track is where all of these characters go and at the end of each issue, which characters we like, which characters we don't like. And for my money, I really want to like, – one of the questions that I'm going to constantly be asking is, is Baron Winters helping the situation or helping the story at all? <laughs> I mean, we don't get any sense of how, how he's participated. Like, at, right at the beginning, we're told that he has um, prevented this Lord Bedford from being slaughtered mm-hmm. um, and his people, but there's no sense of how he did that. And by the end of the story, you, you start to suspect it must have been by assembling agents and, you know, inserting them into the environment to do his bidding. So that seems to be his, uh, his shtick. And I would say he's one of those characters who trades in knowledge. You know, mm-hmm. knowledge is power, and he's you know very good at learning things and using them to his advantage. And you know, from that Swamp Thing story, we know that he is a um, you know, a player in the mystical landscape of DC. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, you don't really get a sense of how and you know what his his actual involvement is and how he learns things and gathers them, etc. Right. Right. Like so, yeah. uh, there must be some sort of pre knowledge that he has targeted. You know, Jack Gold, who's investigating this, you know, mm-hmm. you know, it's pre-internet. He doesn't have surveillance cameras, you know. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, so we we sort of have to figure like, okay, is he does he have some supernatural abilities himself, or is this just he's so old that he's able to see the long game and he's able to like play these characters like chess pieces? Uh, I think we should all, all of the above. Or yeah, could be yeah. You know, as we're going through these stories for you listeners, as I mentioned, it's not like a normal type of horror story. Think of. A, a supernatural, a somewhat horrific version of Mission Impossible. There's a, there's a lot of sort of spy thriller espionage themes that we're going to be dealing with, um, and and sort of I I like what you said, how you described it, a, a fear of the unknown within a corrupt world where sort of everyone is out to get you. Uh, I, mm. I think that's very that's a very interesting way to kind of set the emotional tone of some of the first couple issues. Yeah, and just to specify, the Mission Impossible TV show is what you're talking about, not the movie. Like, no one's going rogue in this <laughs> comic. Uh, that is indeed what I meant. This is not a Tom Cruise movie yet. <laughs> Although, you know, no. Oh, yeah, I'm starting to think about it. <laughs> I was like, Tom Cruise played Lestat. He kind of dressed a little bit like Baron Winters. <laughs> as long as we get a scene of him running, I'm, I'm cool. Yeah. Final thoughts before we wrap up this episode, Paul? Um, it's it's a great little journey to be on. And um, I'm, I read the entire series in the last few months and uh, I really enjoyed it. So, um, And I actually felt a real pang of uh, disappointment when I realized it was over. Uh, you know, it's there's something about it. It re- kind of reminds me a little bit of Astro City in that you've got this world and you meet all these different players and you just want to sort of stay in the world longer yeah, and see different aspects of it some more. And, uh, but it all hinges around Baron Winters and, uh, yeah, I'm interested to, uh, you know, hear your thoughts as we go through it and, uh, hear what the listeners think if they respond. I'm going to keep my thoughts secret. (laughs) (laughs) Damn it. This is going to be one of those podcasts where the host doesn't talk about (laughs) what the content is. (laughs) You know, one of those. Um, <laughs> speaking of that, when you're not appearing on this podcast, where else can people find you in the internet or the podcast sphere? Uh, I'm usually found at Waiting for Doom, the Doom Patrol podcast, um, which is having great times. The old uh, Doom Patrol series at the moment is excellent, and mm-hmm. we're very much enjoying. Um, when it was coming, it was like, oh, uh, you know, good, we're getting a new Doom Patrol series. Um, and there's a little bit of you know, hesitance. Is it going to be any good? Is it uh, Would Jared Way run out of writing talent at this point? But um, it's been excellent. And the revelation for me has been Nick Darrington's art. It's mm-hmm. amazing. He is such a good artist and doing wonderful things and you know for someone i've never heard of who's never worked in comics before he is he's a a master (laughs) at um at the medium already um so very impressed with that um i do that with mike um he's another aussie um so if you like hearing aussies talk about doom patrol uh waiting for doom i'd recommend that and i like to pop up on other podcasts from time to time when people will have me um (laughs) no i don't get many invitations to talk about dr strange but anyway that's fine. I think, even though I saw it a week before you, anyway. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, and I can be. You're not smart I about that f- or anything either, are you? No, no. Okay. It's, it's just the you know anti-Aussie <laughs> faction of the world. No, I'm used to it. Um, and I'm on Twitter at reading underscore hicks h i x. Um, and yeah, come and follow me if you like to see someone punching a koala in the picture. <laughs> Who doesn't want that? All right. Well, Paul, thank you very much for uh, joining me on this part of the the podcast. I'm really looking forward to these continuing stories. So uh, thank you very much. May the night force be with you, Brian. (laughs) Well done. Well done. Episode 3 of Midnight, the podcasting hour, featuring me and Doug Zavisha talking about Dead Man's first appearance, received new Twitter favorites and retweets from Alan Middleton, All New Sucks, Andrew in Belfast, Ange, Arg Sims, Hashtag Black Helicopter News, Buy 1K Followers, $12. That seems legit. Cash Flag, a.k.a. Al, Codeman at Beware the Matman, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comic Reflections, Cuyahoga Avenger, Eric Conrad, 
Film and Water Podcast, Fire and Water Network, Greg Arujo, It's Plastic Man, Jacob Edwards, Jeremy Gunter, Jim Deadman, Joe Crawford, Juliana, Justice's First Dawn, Keith G. Baker, Laurel at Mountainflower One, Longbox Crusade, Matches Balone, Pippa Hunter, Pod Dillon, Presto Pod, RAD Network, that's the Ruth and Darren Sutherland Network, World Spine Podcast, Siskoid, Slangword Scott, Swamp Thing at DC World Swampy, Terry Malloy, Too Dangerous, Treasury Comics, Unexpectedly Flanger at Reading underscore Hicks, Warlord Worlds, Xenozoic Xenophiles, and Zavisha, who was legally bound to promote the show. On Facebook, the episode received likes and shares from Al Sedano, Chris Franklin, Clinton Robison, Coffee and Comics Blog, DeBeche, Fire and Water Podcast Network, Gotham Shioran, Jeremy Gunter, Joe Crawford, John Daniel Hall, Luke Dobb, Matthew Parmenter, Rob Kelly, The Irredeemable Shag, Sean Myers, Silver and Gold Podcast, Tim Trevitt, and Xavier Golden. Moving on to the website comments, which you can find at fireandwaterpodcast.com. While you're there, go ahead and leave a comment of your own. I'll try to recognize every person who leaves a comment, but I'm going to cherry-pick the parts I read aloud to avoid repetition and such. Before getting into any specific comments, a lot of people have mentioned the music used for this podcast on the first couple of episodes. All of the tracks used so far and going forward are written and recorded by my brother, Neil Daly. He didn't compose the music for this podcast, although he might as well have for my purposes. Neil lives in Los Angeles, and years ago, some of his friends were making a super low-budget indie horror movie. A vampire movie, to be exact. They asked Neil to compose a soundtrack for them, which he did. He created a couple of specific themes and then recorded multiple variations of those themes. Well, I have no idea whatever happened to the vampire film, but Neil kept the unused soundtrack and gave me permission to use the songs as I see fit for this podcast. After that, it was fun identifying which tracks I wanted to use for Swamp Things episodes, which for Dead Man, Night Force, etc. So yeah, if you enjoy the music on the show, thank my brother. He's also recorded some more conventional rock and alternative albums that you can find on Reverb Nation, iTunes, and Amazon.com. Of course, I am the one who syncs the tracks up with the episodes, so you know, thank me too. Moving on, the other subject that came up frequently in the comments of last episode was the short story PJ Frightful told in the prologue. That was an original story of mine, I wanted to tell a short vignette to set the mood, and then the story and the characters grew more detailed as I was writing and it turned into a kind of will-o'-the-wisp ghost story, which I'm happy with. Yes, I do want to continue that story, and I've got other ideas of similar types of intros, but... Don't expect them every episode. They're always subject to my creative bursts, and of course the amount of time I have to prepare and revise. But, if you enjoyed that part, thank you, I really appreciate it. Okay, let's get to your comments on the website. First one came from Martin Gray, from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl. Martin said... I actually prefer Carmine Infantino to Neil Adams on Dead Man. Naturalism is impressive, but Infantino's work is more expressive. That's a very interesting opinion, and I would be curious to know who else, if anyone, agrees with you. Martin also said, PJ creeps me out even without the spooky story. And he suggested I hold a write-a-five-minute spooky story contest, and PJ Frightful will read the winner on an episode. I love that idea, actually. I may implement that in the future. Paul Hicks, who you heard on this episode, said, Always a pleasure to hear the charming Doug Zavisha on a podcast. I love how he calls everyone Sir. It's called Respect, Paul. Some of us are more familiar with it than others. Paul also said, After listening to the Legends episodes on Views from the Longbox, I want you to podcast regularly with Michael Bailey and call it Daily Bailey. If there was a 25th hour in the day or an 8th day of the week, I would gladly make that happen. Dial C for comment said, Dead Man was a character I got introduced to by the Justice League Unlimited cartoon, which I could not believe there was a character like that. I was drawn to him because of the really cool outfit. This issue was really neat. I dug how it was done like a murder mystery, showing you potential suspects and setting up their motives. Dial C also said, I kind of want to see a series or mini of Boston having to go up against other supernatural creatures from the Indian beliefs. How cool it would be to see how he deals with Asura or other monsters that can possess people. Yeah, that would be cool. I'd, I'd be all for that. Rob Kelly from 
let's say half of the shows on the Fire and Water Network said loved the Telltale Heart-ish music drop in the background during the Dead Man segment. Thank you. As mentioned, Dead Man is screaming out for a live-action adaptation. It's amazing with all the IP being plundered nowadays, no director slash writer slash producer has ever thought to give it a try. Why, you could even cross it over with Supergirl and adapt that really awesome Alan Brenner story. And Doug replied to Rob's comment, I just hope when Dead Man gets the live-action nod, it's on TV. Seems like DC's figured that out, and we stand a chance of getting a little more true-to-source interpretation. Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast and my partner on Batman Nightcast said this was his introduction to Dead Man as the story was printed in DC Blue Ribbon Special that reprinted this and several other origin stories, including Zatanna and Zatara and The Demon. Chris then said, Infantino's clowns scared me. This was definitely Carmine cutting loose a bit, more like his elongated man backups of the time than his Batman and Flash work. He'd get looser later, and we can see that at work here. Chris then said, Anyone think Deadman had a big inspiration in the Fugitive TV series? The mission to find a one-armed killer is kind of hard to ignore, and the show was big at the time. I've always thought this, but never heard Drake or Infantino mention it. It definitely seems like it might have been in the air, at least, if not an outright inspiration. Lou Mugen, I am really sorry if I mispronounced that, Lou. He said, I picked up Strange Adventures 205 off the stands and was definitely hooked beyond belief. Dead Man remains my favorite comic character, at least from the Strange Adventures run through the second Brave and the Bold appearance. Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog Comic Box Commentary said, I'm ready to face the slings and arrows from your audience, but I have simply never liked Dead Man as a character. Maybe it's because he curses Rama in every story, maybe because I think his power is creepy because it robs the victims of their own lives, maybe because he has the people he inhabits do circus-like flips because since he knows how to do it, their body should be able to achieve it. I am hoping that maybe hearing your coverage of the early stuff will show me what I have missed. Now, keep in mind, Ange likes the Creeper, so... For a different perspective, Siskoid from the internet said, Dead Man for life. <laughs> Get it? Yeah, love Dead Man. Can't wait to discover every story in sequence. He's such a classic and at the same time such a weird mishmash of ideas. Even his street accent, which sounds like Ben Grimm's to me, seems to come out of left field. I uh, got a comment from Rift who said, Enjoying the series so far, I never knew of the demon within until you covered it. Man, what a great story, and like you said, so representative of so many struggles people go through in their everyday lives, feeling forced to hide who they really are and conform to what society says they should be. Totally disgusting. Can't wait to hear more. You have a great list of guests and co-hosts, except that Paul Hicks guy. You know he advocates punching koalas, right? To which Paul chimed in, not just koalas. Got a comment from Phil Rutledge, who said, I discovered Dead Man via Challengers of the Unknown number 85, which had both Dead Man and Swamp Thing as guest stars. I picked this up at a school swap meet as a kid, and it was decades until I found the next two issues to see how the story ended. Phil added, By the way, the Dead Man trade paperbacks, volumes 1 through 5, are a great and cheap way to get all of the Dead Man appearances through the 80s. They reprint all of the miscellaneous appearances in Adventure Comics, Aquaman, Brave and the Bold, DC Comics Presents, DC Special Series, etc. And then Doug responded, Great call, Phil, and to plug the frequent fire and water sponsor, In Stock Trades, you can get all five for a total of under $50. It's a smart deal, and I personally endorse it. And then Doug said to me, Ryan, we didn't mention it in our analysis of the cover, and no one, no one, called us on it. How did we not mention the hook holding the rifle? Admittedly, it looks more like a robot claw or a wrench than a prosthetic hook, but still. Yeah, we dropped the... It was was a case, I think, of it just being, like, too obvious. We were too aware of it that it didn't seem special or important at the time. That's all I can say. The dastardly creative Luke Dobbs said, I got into Dead Man a couple years ago when my cousin challenged me to write a song for the character. At the time, I didn't know anything about him, so I bought his trades in order to research. I've come to love Boston Brand as a character. His woe-is-me attitude is unique in the DC landscape, and he brings real texture to the stories where he appears. I would love to see DC do more with him, and I'm really excited for the upcoming Justice League Dark animated movie. As for my song, in case you're wondering, it's got a great start, but it's completely stalled. Maybe one day I'll bring it to conclusion. All I can say is get on that, Luke, because we would be happy to spotlight it here. 
Jimmy McGlinchey said, My only experience with Deadman is his modern appearances, so going back over his early stories will be a great experience. Look forward to the next one. And the last comment came from the Irredeemable Shag, who said he didn't know much about Deadman, but enjoyed his appearances on cartoons like Batman the Brave and the Bold. Shag added, I'm enjoying each and every episode of this show, falling in love more and more each time. So happy to hear Doug on a regular basis. His knowledge and observations really bring a lot to the coverage. Hey, Doug's the man. I also got an email after episode 3 from Scott Rowland. Scott said, Unsurprisingly, I am still enjoying Midnight the Podcasting Hour. On episode 3 covering the first Dead Man appearance, you guys mentioned the possibility of the Comics Code complaining about the character being dead. That wasn't all that raises questions about the code. The story also mentioned narcotic smuggling and had a corrupt police officer. Both Comics Code no-nos in those days. While I can see the code approving a ghostly hero, as it did for both the Spectre and American Comics Group's nemesis earlier in the 1960s, those two items making it through surprised me. I know this was around the time Carmine gave up drawing to become editorial director at DC, and I know he had a soft spot for Deadman. I am wondering if he specifically pushed it through, or if it was a case of the code just not paying much attention that week. Sadly, I don't think we'll ever know. It was clear that Arnold Drake was reaching for a more mature, dare I say grittier, approach to comics than any of the major companies had at the time. Green Lantern 76 gets all the attention for relevance, but if Drake had continued with Dead Man along its vein, maybe Strange Adventures 205 would have been regarded as the vanguard of that movement. Thanks for the fun. Looking forward to the next episode. Well, thank you for your letter, Scott. Very thoughtful, very thought-provoking. Had Arnold Drake stayed with a book while Neil Adams was drawing it, maybe they would have taken Dead Man down darker, edgier pathways toward mature reader content? Maybe. Maybe this Dead Man series would have kind of had the same notoriety as Green Lantern, Green Arrow, the hard-traveling heroes. It's interesting to speculate. Anyway, that is going to be all for this episode. Thanks to everyone who wrote in, left a comment, or supported the show on social media. Next episode, I'll read an iTunes review or two. Come back in two weeks for that, as well as a bloody violent story of the Spectre by Michael Fleischer and Jim Aparo, as covered by me and my special guest, Howard Simpson. Until then... Send them an email at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. Midnight, the podcasting hour, is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed belong solely to the speaker. Music for this podcast is produced by Neil Daly. Any additional music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, have a good midnight.